Chapter Two, Section One of *The Promise of American Life* by Herbert Crawley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by the Progressing America Project. Chapter Two, Section One: The Federalists and the Republicans. The purpose of the following review of American political ideas and practices is, it must be premised, critical rather than narrative or expository. I am not seeking to justify a political and economic theory by an appeal to historical facts. I am seeking, on the contrary, to place some kind of an estimate and interpretation upon American political ideas and achievements, and this estimate and interpretation is determined chiefly by a preconceived ideal. The acceptability of such an estimate and interpretation will, of course, depend at bottom upon the number of important facts which it explains and the number which it either neglects or distorts. No doubt, certain omissions and distortions are inevitable in an attempt of this kind, but I need scarcely add that the greatest care has been taken to avoid them. In case the proposed conception of the promise of American life cannot be applied to our political and economic history without essential perversion, it must obviously fall to the ground, and as a matter of fact, the ideal itself has been sensibly modified during the course of this attempt to give it an historical application. In spite of all these modifications it remains, however, an extremely controversial review. Our political and economic past is, in a measure, challenged in order to justify our political and social future. The values placed upon many political ideas, tendencies, and achievements differ radically from the values placed upon them either by their originators and partisans, or in some cases by the majority of American historians. The review, consequently, will meet with a far larger portion of instinctive opposition and distrust than it will of acquiescence. The whole traditional set of values which it criticizes is almost as much alive today as it was two generations ago, and it forms a background to the political faith of the great majority of Americans. Whatever favor a radical criticism can obtain, it must win on its merits, both as an adequate interpretation of our political past, and as an outlook towards the solution of our present and future political and economic problems. The material for this critical estimate must be sought, not so much in the events of our national career, as in the ideas which have influenced its course. Closely as these ideas are associated with the actual course of American development, their meaning and their remoter tendencies have not been wholly realized therein, because beyond a certain point, no attempt was made to think out these ideas candidly and consistently. For one generation American statesmen were vigorous and fruitful political thinkers, but the time soon came when Americans ceased to criticize their own ideas, and since that time, the meaning of many of our fundamental national conceptions has been partly obscured, as well as partly expressed, by the facts of our national growth. Consequently, we must go behind these facts and scrutinize, with more caution than is usually considered necessary, the adequacy and consistency of the underlying ideas. And I believe that the results of such a scrutiny will be very illuminating. It will be found that from the start, there has been one group of principles at work, which have made for American national fulfillment, and another group of principles which has made for American national distraction, and that these principles are as much alive today as they were when Jefferson wrote the Kentucky Resolutions, or when Jackson, at the dinner of the Jefferson Club, toasted the preservation of the Union. 
but while these warring principles always have been and still are alive they have never in my opinion been properly discriminated one from another and until such a discrimination is made the lesson cannot be profitably applied to the solution of our contemporary national problems all our histories recognize of course the existence from the very beginning of our national career of two different and in some respects antagonistic groups of political ideas the ideas which were represented by jefferson and the ideas which were represented by hamilton it is very generally understood also that neither the jeffersonian nor the hamiltonian doctrine was entirely adequate and that in order to reach a correct understanding of the really formative constituent in the complex of american national life a combination must be made of both republicanism and federalism but while the necessity of such a combination is fully realized i do not believe that it has ever been mixed in just the proper proportions we are content to say with webster that the prosperity of american institutions depends upon the unity and inseparability of individual and local liberties and a national union we are content to declare that the united states must remain somehow a free and a united country because there can be no complete unity without liberty and no salutary liberty outside of a union but the difficulties with this phrase its implications and consequences we do not sufficiently consider it is enough that we have found an optimistic formula wherewith to unite the divergent aspects of the republican and federalist doctrines we must begin consequently with critical accounts of the ideas both of jefferson and of hamilton and we must seek to discover wherein each of these sets of ideas was right and wherein each was wrong in what proportions they were subsequently combined in order to form our noble national theory and what were the advantages the limitations and the effects of this combination i shall not disguise the fact that on the whole my own preferences are on the side of hamilton rather than of jefferson he was the sound thinker the constructive statesman the candid and honorable if erring gentleman while jefferson was the amiable enthusiast who understood his fellow countrymen better and trusted them more than his rival but who was incapable either of uniting with his fine phrases a habit of candid and honorable private dealing or of embodying those phrases in a set of efficient institutions but although hamilton is much the finer man and much the sounder thinker and statesman there were certain limitations in his ideas and sympathies the effects of which have been almost as baleful as the effects of jefferson's intellectual superficiality and insincerity he perverted the american national idea almost as much as jefferson perverted the american democratic idea and the proper relation of these two fundamental conceptions one to another cannot be completely understood until this double perversion is corrected to make hamilton and jefferson exclusively responsible for this double perversion is however by no means fair the germs of it are to be found in the political ideas and prejudices with which the american people emerged from their successful revolutionary war at that time indeed the opposition between the republican and the federalist doctrines had not become definite and acute and it is fortunate that such was the case because if the opponents of an efficient federal constitution had been organized and had been possessed of the full courage and consciousness of their convictions that instrument would never have been accepted or it would have been accepted only in a much more mutilated and enfeebled condition nevertheless the different political points of view which afterwards developed into hamiltonian federalism and jeffersonian republicanism 
were latent in the interests and opinions of the friends and of the opponents of an efficient federal government and these interests and opinions were the natural product of contemporary american economic and political conditions both federalism and anti-federalism were the mixed issue of an interest and a theory the interest which lay behind federalism was that of well-to-do citizens in a stable political and social order and this interest aroused them to favor and to seek some form of political organization which was capable of protecting their property and promoting its interest they were the friends of liberty because they were in a position to benefit largely by the possession of liberty and they wanted a strong central government because only by such means could their liberties which consisted fundamentally in the ability to enjoy and increase their property be guaranteed their interests were threatened by the disorganized state governments in two different but connected respects these governments did not seem able to secure either internal order or external peace in their domestic policy the states threatened to become the prey of a factious radical democracy and their relations one to another were by way of being constantly embroiled unless something could be done it looked as if they would drift in a condition either of internecine warfare without profit or at best of peace without security a centralized and efficient government would do away with both of these threats it would prevent or curb all but the most serious sectional disputes while at the same time it would provide a much stronger guarantee for internal political order and social stability an equally strong interest lay at the roots of anti-federalism and it had its theory though this theory was less mature and definite behind the opposition to a centralized government were the interests and the prejudices of the mass of the american people the people who were comparatively speaking lacking in money in education and in experience the revolutionary war while not exclusively the work of the popular element in the community had undoubtedly increased considerably its power and influence a large proportion of the well-to-do colonial americans had been active or passive tories and had either been ruined or politically disqualified by the revolution their successful opponents reorganized the state governments in a radical democratic spirit the power of the state was usually concentrated in the hands of a single assembly to whom both the executive and the courts were subservient and this method of organization was undoubtedly designed to give immediate and complete effect to the will of a popular majority the temper of the local democracies which for the most part controlled the state governments was insubordinate factious and extremely independent they disliked the idea of a centralized federal government because a supreme power would be thereby constituted which would interfere with the freedom of local public opinion and thwart its will no less than the federalists they believed in freedom but the kind of freedom they wanted was freedom from anything but local interference the ordinary american democrat felt that the power of his personality and his point of view would be diminished by the efficient centralization of political authority he had no definite intention of using the democratic state governments for anti-social or revolutionary purposes but he was self-willed and unruly in temper and his savage treatment of the tories during and after the revolution had given him a taste of the sweets of confiscation the spirit of his democracy was self-reliant undisciplined suspicious of authority equalitarian and individualistic with all their differences however 
the federalists and their opponents had certain common opinions and interests and it was these common opinions and interests which prevented the split from becoming irremediable the men of both parties were individualist in spirit and they were chiefly interested in the great american task of improving their own condition in this world they both wanted a government which would secure them freedom of action for this purpose the difference between them was really less a difference of purpose than of the means whereby a purpose should be accomplished the federalists representing as they did chiefly the people of wealth and education demanded a government adequate to protect existing property rights but they were not seeking any exceptional privileges except those traditionally associated with the ownership of private property the anti-federalists on the other hand having less to protect and more to acquire insisted rather upon being let alone than in being protected they expressed themselves sometimes in such an extremely insubordinate manner as almost to threaten social disorder but were very far from being fundamentally antisocial in interest or opinion they were all by way of being property owners and they all expected to benefit by freedom from interference in the acquisition of wealth it was this community of interest and point of view which prepared the way not only for the adoption of the constitution but for the loyalty it subsequently inspired in the average american it remains none the less true however that the division of interest and the controversy thereby provoked was sharp and brought about certain very unfortunate consequences inasmuch as the anti-federalists were unruly democrats and were suspicious of any efficient political authority the federalists came justly or unjustly to identify both anti-federalism and democracy with political disorder and social instability they came that is to have much the same opinion of radical democracy as an english peer might have had at the time of the french revolution and this prejudice which was unjust but not unnatural was very influential in determining the character of the federal constitution that instrument was framed not as the expression of a democratic creed but partly as a legal fortress against the possible errors and failings of democracy the federalist point of view resembled that of the latter constitutional liberals in france the political idea and benefit which they prized most highly was that of liberty and the constitution was framed chiefly for the purpose of securing liberty from any possible dangers popular liberty must be protected against possible administrative or executive tyranny by free representative institutions individual liberty must be protected against the action of an unjust majority by the strongest possible legal guarantees and above all the general liberties of the community must not be endangered by any inefficiency of the government as a whole the only method whereby these complicated and in a measure conflicting ends could be attained was by a system of checks and balances which would make the executive legislative and judicial departments of the government independent of one another while at the same time endowing each department with all the essentials of efficient action within its own sphere but such a method of political organization was calculated to thwart the popular will just in so far as that will did not conform to what the federalists believed to be the essentials of a stable political and social order it was antagonistic to democracy as that word was then and is still to a large extent understood the extent of this antagonism to democracy if not an intention at least an effect is frequently overrated the antagonism depends upon the identification of democracy with a political organization for expressing immediately and completely the will of the majority whatever that will may be and such a conception of democracy contains only part of the truth nevertheless 
the founders of the constitution did succeed in giving some effect to their distrust of the democratic principle no matter how conservatively defined and this was at once a grave error on their part and a grave misfortune for the american state founded as the national government is partly on a distrust of the american democracy it has always tended to make the democracy somewhat suspicious of the national government this mutual suspicion while it has been limited in scope and diminished by the action of time constitutes a manifest impediment to the efficient action of the american political system the great lesson of american political experience as we shall see is rather that of interdependence than of incompatibility between an efficient national organization and a group of radical democratic institutions and ideals and the meaning of this lesson has been obscured because the federal organization has not been constituted in a sufficiently democratic spirit and because consequently it has tended to provoke distrust on the part of good democrats at every stage in the history of american political ideas and practice we shall meet with the unfortunate effects of this partial antagonism the error of the federalists can however be excused by many extenuating circumstances democracy as an ideal was misunderstood in 1786 and it was possessed of little or no standing in theory or tradition moreover the radical american democrats were doing much to deserve the misgivings of the federalists their ideas were narrow impracticable and hazardous and they were opposed to the essential political need of the time viz the constitution of an efficient federal government the federalists may have misinterpreted and perverted the proper purpose of american national organization but they could have avoided such misinterpretation only by an extraordinary display of political insight and a heroic superiority to natural prejudice their error sinks into insignificance compared with the enormous service which they rendered to the american people and the american cause without their help there might not have been any american nation at all or it might have been born under a far darker cloud of political suspicion and animosity the instrument which they created with all its faults proved capable of becoming both the organ of an efficient national government and the fundamental law of a potentially democratic state it has proved capable of flexible development both in function and in purpose and it has been developed in both these directions without any sacrifice of integrity its success has been due to the fact that its makers with all their apprehensions about democracy were possessed of a wise and positive political faith they believed in liberty they believed that the essential condition of fruitful liberty was an efficient central government they knew that no government could be efficient unless its powers equaled its responsibilities they were willing to trust to such a government the security and the welfare of the american people the constitution has proved capable of development chiefly as the instrument of these positive political ideas thanks to the theory of implied powers to the liberal construction of the supreme court during the first forty years of its existence and to the results of the civil war the federal government has on the whole become more rather than less efficient as the national political organ of the american people almost from the start american life has grown more and more national in substance in such wise that a rigid constitution which could not have been developed in a national direction would have been an increasing source of irritation and protest but this reinforcement of the substance of american national life has until recently found an adequate expression in the increasing scope and efficiency of the federal government the federalists had the insight to anticipate the kind of government which their country needed and this was a great and rare achievement all the more so 
because they were obliged in a measure to impose it on their fellow countrymen there is however another face to the shield the constitution was the expression not only of a political faith but also of political fears it was wrought both as the organ of the national interest and as the bulwark of certain individual and local rights the federalists sought to surround private property freedom of contract and personal liberty with an impregnable legal fortress and they were forced by their opponents to amend the original draft of the constitution in order to include a still more stringent bill of individual and state rights now i am far from pretending that these legal restrictions have not had their value in american national history and were not the expression of an essential element in the composition and the ideal of the american nation the security of private property and personal liberty and a proper distribution of activity between the local and the central governments demanded at that time and within limits still demand adequate legal guarantees it remains none the less true however that every popular government should in the end and after a necessarily prolonged deliberation possess the power of taking any action which in the opinion of a decisive majority of the people is demanded by the public welfare such is not the case with the government organized under the federal constitution in respect to certain fundamental provisions which necessarily receive the most rigid interpretation on the part of the courts it is practically unmodifiable a very small percentage of the american people can in this respect permanently thwart the will of an enormous majority and there can be no justification for such a condition on any possible theory of popular sovereignty this defect has not hitherto had very many practical inconveniences but it is an absolute violation of the theory and the spirit of american democratic institutions the time may come when the fulfillment of a justifiable democratic purpose may demand the limitation of certain rights to which the constitution affords such absolute guarantees and in that case the american democracy might be forced to seek by revolutionary means the accomplishment of a result which should be attainable under the law it was none the less a great good thing that the union under the new constitution triumphed americans have more reason to be proud of its triumph than of any other event in their national history the formation of an effective nation out of the thirteen original colonies was a political achievement for which there was no historical precedent up to that time large countries had been brought if not held together by military force or by a long process of gradually closer historical association small and partly independent communities had combined one with another only on compulsion the necessities of joint defense might occasionally drive them into temporary union but they would not stay united they preferred a precarious and tumultuous independence to a combination with neighboring communities which brought security at the price of partial subordination and loyal cooperation even the provinces which composed the united netherlands never submitted to an effective political union during the active and vital period of their history the small american states had apparently quite as many reasons for separation as the small grecian and italian states the military necessities of the revolution had welded them only into a loose and feeble confederation and a successful revolution does not constitute a very good precedent for political subordination the colonies were divided from one another by difficulties of communication by variations in economic conditions and social customs by divergent interests and above all by a rampant provincial and separatist spirit on the other hand they were united by a common language by a common political and legal tradition 
and by the fact that none of them had ever really been independent sovereign states. Nobody dared or cared to object to union in the abstract. Nobody advocated the alternative of complete separation. It was only a strong, efficient union which aroused the opposition of the Clintons and the Patrick Henrys. Nevertheless, the conditions making for separation have the appearance of being more insistent and powerful than the conditions making for an effective union. Disunion was so easy. Union was so difficult. If the states had only kept on drifting a little longer, they would, at least for a while, inevitably have drifted apart. They were saved from such a fate chiefly by the insight and energy of a few Unionist leaders, of whom Washington and Hamilton were the most important. Perhaps American conditions were such, that eventually some kind of a national government was sure to come, but the important point is that when it came, it came as the result of forethought and will, rather than of compulsion. It seems to have been reserved, says Hamilton in the very first number of the Federalist, quote, to the people of this country by their conduct and example, to decide the important question whether societies of men are really capable or not, of establishing good government from reflection and choice, or whether they are forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force. End quote. Americans deliberately selected the better part. It is true that the evil effects of a loose union were only too apparent, and that public safety, order, and private property were obviously endangered by the feeble machinery of federal government. Nevertheless, conditions had not become intolerable. The terrible cost of disunion in money, blood, humiliation, and hatred had not actually been paid. It might well have seemed cheaper to most Americans to drift on a little longer than to make the sacrifices and to undertake the labor demanded by the formation of an effective union. There were plenty of arguments by which a policy of letting things alone could be plausibly defended, and the precedents were all in its favor. Other people had acquired such political experience as they were capable of assimilating, first by drifting into some intolerable excess or some distressing error, and then by undergoing some violent process of purgation or reform. But it is the distinction of our own country that at the critical moment of its history, the policy of drift was stopped before a virulent disease had necessitated a violent and exhausting remedy. This result was achieved chiefly by virtue of capable, energetic, and patriotic leadership. It is stated that if the Constitution had been subjected to a popular vote, as soon as the labors of the Convention terminated, it would probably have been rejected in almost every state in the Union. That it was finally adopted, particularly by certain important states, was distinctly due to the conversion of public opinion, by means of powerful and convincing argument. The American people steered the proper course, because their leaders convinced them of the proper course to steer, and the behavior of the many who followed behind is as exemplary as is that of the few who pointed the way. A better example could not be asked of the successful operation of the democratic institutions, and it would be as difficult to find its parallel in the history of our own as in the history of European countries. End of chapter 2, section 1